Hello there, my name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia with a message for all those that are hungry and thirsty for reality, for ultimate meaning and destiny and purpose. And that is highly confirmed from many fields of science and archaeology. But what is this ultimate reality? What is it? It is an ultimate perfection and manifestation of love that is the very source of love. But before getting into sharing more about this, which is who the one true eternal God is, I want to refer you to my website at ultimatemeaning.com where you can read a flip book, which is very original writing and understanding by the gifting of the Spirit of God through me to you. In the print, there's a lot of print that is read those are links to YouTube videos that are very amazing and profound that highly confirm from many fields of science and archaeology the reality of what I am sharing here. So you will find those videos that most people, the vast majority of the public, does not know anything about what is presented in these videos that exposes a mastery of deception and lies with very solid, irrefutable, indisputable evidence. And you're going to really find out if you bought into all of these lies through the educational systems and so on, how much you've been lied to. If you're really wanting reality and what it ultimately satisfies, then in fact is a pleasure that ever enlarges in creative fellowship without end. A destiny in heaven with the Creator, with the one true eternal God, which is referred to, of course, in the Bible. You're wanting that. Well, just hang on, but I will mention the name of God in the Old Testament is Yahweh. That's equivalent to Lord in the English, and God is usually equivalent to Elohim, and it's usually Lord God, in most of the reading of the scripture. And in the Hebrew, that is Yahweh or Jehovah. Some people call it a lit, but that's not as accurate. And Elohim, meaning the Almighty's, referring to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God could not be Almighty if he wasn't in three persons because he must be in personage to rule in the three ultimate aspects of existence which is beyond creation and time and space as the Father in the creation realm as the Son, which is the full expression of the Father to and in the creation realm to communicate with the creation realm, and as the Holy Spirit filling all dimensions of existence within the creation realm and beyond with the Father. And so these three ultimate aspects, if you were a person, you would also have to be in three personages to be in conscious, intelligent rule in those three ultimate aspects of existence. And the other thing I briefly want to mention is, is that this one true eternal God, his love is so pure, so integrous, that he always freely chooses the highest lasting good over any lesser choice. There's three types of love mentioned in the Bible. Eros, sexual, philia, and agape. Agape is this highest 
form of love, which basically can be defined as always choosing the highest lasting good, independent of feelings, whether there are the feelings or not. This one true eternal God, his love is so pure that it is, as it were, a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to this love that always chooses the highest lasting good. Obviously, any choice that would be less than that would have a measure of corruption in it. This love is the antithesis of corruption. It is the opposite of corruption. It is the destroyer of all corruption. And if love condoned what was contrary to love, it would no longer be love. It would have corruption in it and wouldn't go on forever. Eternal life comes from God, everlasting life that never ends, that is ever enlarging in pleasures of fellowship, creative pleasures of fellowship. I know what I'm talking about. I've written a book called Afterlife, Incredible, Irrefutable, which just recently has been published on the internet, 368 pages in print, which you can get also as a Kindle with way more links than the average book to all kinds of YouTube videos right at the right time location in those videos to see all the amazing testimonies and evidence for yourself. Well, I'm not going to get sidetracked on talking about this right now. First of all, I want to go into a song, uh, a worship song that I choose, and then I will continue a bit with some more introduction before we get into how these messages are shared after the and into the actual message. So, I will now um, take you to the um, part of the thing here that I have ready for you to sing along with. Here we go. that happened. Oh well.
Corrupting Satan's lies None like thyself So faithful wise Lord I remember worship song and uh, hopefully everything is working on this I'm just going to take a look here it is so um, <clears throat> these messages are for those that have come to the saving knowledge of God through Jesus Christ And for those that are gathered around Christ in assembly, especially here in Canada where I am and in the United States and around the world, I seek to speak prophetically what God would be saying by his spirit in this particular time. And let me explain that. It says in 1 Peter 4.11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And no doubt in everything, we should seek to allow God to speak through us. But this is especially referring to gathering together around Jesus Christ. Each one is to have the liberty to share as the Spirit leads them to share. So one has a song, one has a word of encouragement, one has a prophetic utterance, one has a word of knowledge, one has a prayer. As the Spirit leads them, whether to rise up in prayer, we do not want to quench the Spirit. When we sense the Spirit rising up within us, many are afraid. They don't, want, they don't know exactly what they're going to say, so there might be an element of fear there. But you get over that, and you begin to be so caught up with God that you're just speaking out of worshiping God. This is explained in, further in Revelations 19.10, which says, Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. When we worship God in spirit and in truth with great reverence out of love for God and humility, we are filled with a spirit in an overflow beyond ourselves that can result in creative utterances that are coming from the Spirit of God. You know that old hymn that says, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. When the imagination of your heart or the eye of your heart is opened up, to the light of God, 
the light of God begins to shine upon your heart, perceptions of his glory in certain aspects or ways that you cannot put in words. It's like there's a lover and you're seeing how beautiful their countenance is. And so you begin to describe that beauty. And so it overflows. You can't put it in words. It's beyond words. It overflows. But you know in essence what you're saying. And so it can come out and be interpreted as well. But it usually comes out. Of course, when you're sharing with others, you should always be sharing so that they understand what you are sharing and not sharing in tongues. And so you speak forth whatever it is. A song, you don't know what you're going to sing. You just have a seed top. The spirit is rising in you. You sing it out and, you know, it can become a beautiful poem. I've had it happen a number of times, a good number of times in my life. So I want to encourage you that I'm here to speak out of a heart set and a mindset of worship. And one of the things I do to facilitate that is I cast lots on the Word of God to get the possibility of any chapter in the Bible. And I do it with two independent random applications and get a chapter from both of those applications that they might bear witness with each other as to the theme that I perceive or the message that I perceive between them that would be what God is saying. And there are many times when it's very evident what the theme is, way beyond coincidence. But there are other times where the theme isn't so evident. In those times, it even seems the message many times becomes more rich when you finally recognize what the theme is. It's like in a synergistic effect. And so I will be sharing with you the two chapters that I received today by the casting of Lot. I only spend a half an hour meditating on them. I don't know what I'm going to share. And this time, in these last few times, it's been a lot harder to perceive the theme. And so sometimes... I thought, oh God, it's because I've been attacked by this person and maybe I've been too merciful to them. This has been happening recently because after I've reproved them, I've still been showing mercy to them because I feel bad for them as to the fact that there's no one there to help them in this case. And yet, here they're doing deliberate sin, which is really bad against me and against God. And they don't seem to have any fear of God or conviction. And... They have some mental deficiencies that are probably part of the problem, but it's a very difficult situation for me. However, pray that that situation will be solved soon and uh, that this person will receive the help they need from the proper sources that can help them and that they would come to the true fear of God and true conversion and repentance. Okay, I am going to um, open up the two passages that I received by the casting of Lot. And I will say that today is Wednesday, uh, February the 8th. And the last two days I really couldn't share. Uh, on Monday it was Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 52. Both of these chapters are on judging those that as shepherds did not save, feed, and minister to the sheep, but serve themselves. Gives you an overall view of what God has been saying by the casting of Lot. And those of you that have some problem with the casting of lots, it's very scriptural, it was used extensively by the nation of Israel and the patriarchs and so on. 
It was used by the early church to choose the apostle. It would take the place of Judas. It was used by powerful movements of a revival like the Moravians. And when you're walking right with God in the light as he is in the light, and you love God and you're in fellowship with him, it works powerfully. But if you're not right with God, no, then it could be divination. So we don't want to be in that situation. And so today, I want to share with you so we continue here with yesterday what I got. Yesterday, the common theme between these two chapters is the great liberty and power and union with God through the new covenant relationship with God in contrast to the bondage others were in by being under the law. And today, what I received is here and I didn't have a chance to write what the common theme is between it, but we will begin to read from the passage today and see what God would be saying from these passages. Now, I think, first of all, I should read what I got first, which was um, not pasted in here, but I can explain what it's about. And so I will bring up that passage here by going hopefully to where I can get it. Um, Second Chronicles 10. This is about the division of the nation of Israel that happened through Rehoboam. And without me going into the detail of explaining everything, um, Solomon uh, had passed on to that greater ultimate re real dimension that is far more real than this dimension by a great magnitude. And so Rehoboam went to Shechem and he's now king and has taken the kingship from Solomon, which is now gone. For to Shechem were all Israel come to make him king. And it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was in Egypt, whether he had fled from the presence of Solomon, the king heard it, that Jeroboam returned out of Egypt. And they sent and called him. So Jeroboam and all Israel came and spake to Rehoboam, saying, Thy father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore ease thou somewhat the grievous servitude of thy father and his heavy yoke that he put upon us and we will serve thee. And he said unto them, Come again unto me after three days, and the people departed. And King Rehoboam took counsel with the old man that had stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived, saying, What counsel give ye me to return answer to this people? And they spake unto him, saying, If thou be kind to this people, and please them, and speak good words to them, they will be thy servants forever. But he forsook the counsel which the old man gave him and took counsel with the young men that were brought up with him that stood before him. And he said unto them, What advice give ye that we may return answer to this people which have spoken to me, saying, Ease somewhat the yoke of thy father that thy father did put upon us. And the young men that were brought up with him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt thou answer the people that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but make thou somewhat 
lighter for us, thus shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. For whereas thy, my father put a heavy yoke upon you, I will put more to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day as the king bade him, saying, Come again. And of course, that's what they shared. And of course, when the other 11 tribes of Israel heard that the king that was over Judah, which was the tribe that had the king, had that attitude towards them and spoke in that terrible way with disrespect towards them. They said, forget it. We have no part with you anymore. And of course, Rehoboam is silly enough to send a tax collector to collect ta taxes from them, and they stoned him to death. And that's where the division of the nation of Israel happened. Now, how does this passage go in any way, as I was wondering, with John 14? There is great significance when you consider and meditate on these two chapters. And so I want to point that out to you now by going now back to John 14. I suppose I could go to it here. But the first part of John 14 says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. And I won't continue reading more right now. What I want to point out is that before Israel had a king, they had judges. And God was displeased that they wanted to copy the other nations and have a king. And he brought judgment upon them for that and, and revealed his wrath in that terrible thunder, thunderstorm with the rain. But nevertheless, they had a king. And the king was to represent not just, he was to have somewhat of a role because Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was what God's desire was that they would have such a close relationship with him that they would represent God on the earth. The king also was to represent the people of Israel, but not to represent the people of Israel only, but to display the manifestation of the people of Israel as a kingdom of priests through his kingship so that the divinity and the glory of God was seen in that kingship. And of course, we know that God is love and that God should have been displayed in love through that king. And that palace with all its majesty and glory represented a little picture of heaven on earth because the normal people wouldn't be able to live in, in a big mansion and they wouldn't be able to have all of this majesty and grandeur and power. But the king was to be a representation to encourage them that there is a destiny they're going to with their leader, the king, that will eventually bring them into ultimate habitation with God 
and that on the earth the king was a representation, a manifestation of that glory in its grandeur and splendor that would encourage them to go on with God and to prevail with God. The Constitution of the United States was understood with this kind of an understanding that those that are in leadership are to be the servant of the people and to be the representative representing their desires and their heart for God, for truth, for righteousness, not to dominate them. And of course, what we see right now around the world is a lot of corruption in high places and in government where people are only seeking their own interests and they're not seeking to serve the people out of love, but to take advantage and take their wealth and to abuse it and literally bring them into bondage to be like a bunch of serfs. It happens over and over again throughout history that people that are kings and rulers become so corrupt that they put their people under terrible oppression. But do you think people would want a king like that? No, they didn't want a king that would put them under oppression, but that's what happens over and over. Look at how oppressive Hitler is. And look at the dictators we have today that have become tyrants. They'll lie their way, they'll do anything to get power. And when they get power, they don't care about the people, they just care about themselves and their few elite friends. And we see the same case here with Rehoboam. Where was his identity? Was it in a relationship with God? No, it wasn't. His identity was in the young men around him. He had camaraderie with them. And he wanted to please them, these young, immature men that didn't know hardly a relationship at all with God, because of the corruption that crept into the kingdom through Solomon that came through his compromise with women, with immorality that happened to him. I pray that in the end, he truly repented. And I know I don't doubt that he possibly really did repent like the thief on the cross at the very end. But the consequences were severe. It resulted in the division of the nation of Israel. Look at the consequences that Samson experienced because he fell prey to the temporal fulfillments of lust in a relationship with a woman. The consequences were so severe because he compromised sexually with them that he didn't have discernment. His eyes were taken out literally, but God in the end still used him. It could even be that Saul at the very end it was the enemy of David may have repented. It does say that he would be with Samuel when he died in that passage. But God only knows what I am trying to point out here is that in this passage in John 14, we have our ultimate abiding place in heaven with Christ. And Christ is encouraging his people that he will make them mansions. The king, Rehoboam, should have encouraged those people and said, I'm going to make your life better. I'm going to make your dwelling places better where you're going to have more abundance because I'm not going to put a heavy yoke on you. I want you to prosper. I love you people. 
I don't deserve this leadership. I'm here out of love because of my love for God to serve you. If Saul had the genuine love of God, when Samuel reproved him, he would have said, you know, Samuel, if I've sinned like this, I don't mind. King David can take my place. Just as long as you will, I'm sorry. Just, I'm truly sorry before God that I've displeased him. I don't mind. It's okay. There shouldn't be any motivation for being looked up to by people or having wealth and power. Our, our comfort isn't in these things. It is in a relationship with God. But the nation of Israel wanted to put their identity in a king because there is an element of pride in that. It's just like, why does, did God hate it when King David numbered the children of Israel? You see, Israel was prospering under King David later on. He was a true servant. He had a true servant heart. But in the prosperity and in the military might and success of King David, they got, they began to take, be at ease. And pride and presumption, that's when it creeps in. When we are at ease and we fail to truly be seeking God and we begin to be just all caught up with the natural blessings that God gives out of a revival even, then what happens? We begin to be proud. And so the nation of Israel was becoming proud and glorying in their military might And God's anger was moved against them to cause King David to number the nation of Israel because he wanted to know how powerful they were. God was very wroth with David for doing this and with the nation of Israel because of the pride that was in them that caused the enemy to be released to do that to King David. And so King David went through a great trial and I don't need to tell you all of that. I am pointing out basically what God is wanting to say by his spirit to the churches in this hour. It is a time, and it is obvious from this week, because I had the passage on God judging the shepherds, that it is time for God to judge leadership in the world, leadership in the church, and leadership in the nations that has become so corrupt and is taking away people's liberty and freedom for their own selfish interests. But the same thing is going to happen in the body of Christ. He is going to shake all things that are shakable, that what is unshakable might remain. God is tired of a denominative mindset that is divisive of the hardness of our hearts because of our loves for the world. What hardens the heart is our love for the temporal things of this world. That's why it says in 1 John, that if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. God is calling us as his people to return to the place of great humility in reverence before God out of the genuine fear of God. He is calling for his people to turn to the genuine fear of God because that's what births genuine belief in God. 
that is a belief from the heart or genuine faith, how is that so? You cannot believe in God if you are not perceiving him rightly. You will have a mono, idolatrous, monotheistic perception of God. Like Cain. You must come to that place where when you see all the suffering in your own life and in those around you, you're not focused on that so that you begin to have an attitude of doubt and unbelief and of unthankfulness and think, well, this God is an enigma, a mystery. Why would he allow this? Why would he allow all this? And you start getting into your mind like Cain. And soon, you're perceiving God as some kind of a dictator, that he would allow all this. Remember, God created us as beings that have the capacity of love because he is love. And when you have the capacity of love, you are the source of your own action. You have your own free will. You are self-conscious. Therefore, you are self-responsible for your choices. Therefore, you cannot blame God for creating evil. When the devil made those choices, he made those, those choices and created evil, not God. You see, when you create beings with free will, there is the potential for choice that is corrupt and goes in a direction that is contrary to the love of God, which is a hell-contagious state of being that is like a black hole in outer space, continually grasping, seeking to find fulfillment in self, in independence from God. And all that does is drag others into the same corruption that you have and cause a hell around you. And the answer to that is the genuine fear of God, because the genuine fear of God is a recognition that this love that I described that is so pure that it is a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to love is good. Because that ensures that there can be goodness without corruption, a destiny that is ultimate in heaven where there is no corruption. If God in the slightest condoned what is contrary to love, there would be corruption in him and he would no longer have even eternal life with him. But he is the very source of love, of this love that is so pure. But remember, it is also so great. There's two aspects that are always described in this one true eternal God in both the Old Testament or the pre-Christ scriptures and the New Testament or the post-Christ scriptures. And that is, first of all, what I've described, that his love will not tolerate what is contrary to love. But his love is also so great and always has been in the infinite past, beyond the creation realm and so on, with no end. He always had in his heart, in his being, the capacity to love us. The one that created this vast universe, that you know how great it is with the galaxies and the stars. Nowadays, everyone knows that. And this earth is like a little speck of grain. And he comes down to this, yes, God is so great that he can communicate with his creation. He's not so small that he can't says he humbles himself to behold the things in the that are in the heavens. In Genesis 18, you see three angels meeting Abraham, and one of them is addressed as Yahweh, and they eat food together with Abraham. 
And Yahweh is the most sacred name of God. That was Jesus Christ that came to visit Abraham there in Genesis 18. And yes, God came and became a perfect atoning substitutionary sacrifice for you on the cross. His body was broken unto death for you. His blood was outpoured unto death for you. He humbled himself. Yes, the creator of the universe humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffered more than you, a mere creature, on the cross. And if you were the only one he created, he would have still done that for you. And I can say that with confidence because there's a whole number of Christians highly verified as being dead. For, for example, Dean Braxton, for almost two hours, look him up on YouTube, Dean Braxton, B-R-A-X-T-O-N, he was dead for almost two hours, highly confirmed with medical equipment and doctors. And he said that the love was so intense when he was standing before Jesus Christ that there's nothing in this dimension that comes close to being able to describe it. It was so intense and beautiful and strong. And he knew that Christ, if he, if he was the only one that was created by Christ, that he would have come and died on the cross for us. He knew that. And so did Dale Black, and others, Randy Kay and others, experienced this. This is how great God's love is for you. How could you reject that? And so the genuine fear of God is reciprocating first the holiness of God that will not tolerate sin, that drives you to a place of great humility and transparency and honesty before God, to not hide anything in his sight, to repent and to turn to him with all your heart. And you can't unless you know that he is able to forgive you. And that's the message that's been there from the beginning, that there is one God and that he will not tolerate sin, but is merciful to forgive you. The mercy of the Lord endures forever is repeated over and over in the Old Testament. That he is holy and yet he is merciful. He will forgive you. If you repent and ask him for forgiveness, you can be reconciled to God because he, only he, could become a perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross, and he did. And I can't go into, the, into depth on in all of this and get sidetracked with different understandings and how people were born again and all the way from the time of Adam and Eve till now, but they all did experience genuine Rebirth of the Spirit when they genuinely turn to God. Or you wouldn't have people like Enoch walking so close to God that they were translated, and Elijah and so on. And that's another topic. What I'm emphasizing here is what God is wanting to do in the church today. He's wanting us to repent of the things that have hardened our heart, where we're not redeeming the time, where we spend our time in many things that are an abomination in the sight of God. It says the things that are highly esteemed among men are an abomination in the sight of God. It's time that we repent of spending hours watching sports instead of seeking God in prayer. And many of you, you spend more time and your emotions more on those things than you do in a relationship with God. I'm not telling you it's wrong to watch sports. I don't want to put you in bondage in some legalistic thing. What I'm trying to say here is that where are your priorities? Are you in love with God? Are you consumed in a love relationship with him? He wants his people to come out of this hardness and be baptized in his love so that they love one another 
so that we truly, truly love one another fervently with a pure heart and can receive one another as Christ received us. That's what it says in the New Testament. Receive one another as he received us. He received us as repentant sinners. And you can't come to him in your sin if you're not repentant in your heart. You're not coming to him. You come acknowledging your sin, humbling yourself, knowing a deep circumcision in your heart of sorrow over your sin, of repentance that's genuine. Rend your heart and not your garment. Turn to him. It is time to seek the Lord until he comes and rings righteousness on us. Is your life thirsty for reality? Is it thirsty for God, or has it been quenched with the loves of the world? Is your heart hard? Break up the fallow ground. It is time to seek the Lord. Till he pours out his love on you, and you are filled with his Spirit. The genuine fear of God is a reciprocation. It is a belief that totally receives who God is, First in his holiness. And when you receive him truly in his holiness, what can you do but be totally dead honest and humble before him and repent of any sin? And it ought to be that we say, show the same reverence and love for one another and treat one another with the same respect and love that we treat God. If we're truly born of the Spirit, we don't treat one another as I have been treated by someone with false accusations and lies and then stealing from me all kinds of things. You know, my heart's broken over this person. I love this person so much. I've been helping them for years and, you know, I don't know what to say. I'm in tears over this person. I, I, I just fear for their soul. I don't want them to be in eternal torment in hell. So I continue to pray for them. That they'll have genuine conversion to Christ. And so God is calling his people to repentance. He's calling us to repent of the division that is between one another. First in our assemblies, we can't even wash one another's feet. We should be able to go to one another. The ones that are the hardest to love are the ones that we maybe have been offended at and admit our faults to them first and tell them and tell them all the good things we see in them and try to see those good things and truly be honest about it, not put on a show, but truly try to see those good things in one another. It says in the word of God, henceforth we know no man after the flesh, even though we knew Christ Jesus after the flesh, henceforth we know him no more after the flesh. Obviously it's after the spirit. How do you know someone after the Spirit? By being in the Spirit, by seeing the image of God in them, that part in them that isn't marred, and loving it and encouraging it to come forth and overthrow the distortions in their lives. And that is what I want to seek to do without compromising, condoning sin, because it does say, if your brother offends you seven times 70, reprove him. And if you repent, forgive him. It doesn't say condone his sin. But we need to initiate forgiveness and be willing to pray, God, forgive them for they know not what they do. Open their eyes. God, have mercy on them. 
I don't want them to go into eternal torment in hell. If they're in a hell-contagious state of being, do you think they could come into heaven like that? The Lord is calling his people to repent of division because he wants them to dwell in the mansions that he's made for them. And he is the one that truly showed genuine kingship because he came to serve and to wash the disciples' feet and told us that we were to wash one another's feet. And his greatest commandment was not only that we love God with all our being, but that we love one another even to the point that we're willing to lay down our lives for one another. We need a powerful, mighty baptism of the love of God that will break the hardness in our hearts so that people aren't so cliquish in the church. Part of what will help towards that is a book I've written called Godheadship and Body Invasion, which you can get on Amazon. It is about, I don't know, it might be around 250 some odd or more pages. And it has all kinds of suggestions of what you can do in your local assembly to not limit the fullness of the headship of Christ from inhabiting your local assembly. And of course, the same in that book, there's lots there that also would impress upon you the things that you can do in your individual life to come into this life that Christ wants to give you that is so much more abundant and fulfilling than your present life. I pray that as I am sharing this message, that the presence of God goes forth and bears witness with this word that I'm seeking, with signs and wonders in all the people that hear this message. That if you're in bondage, that you repent and that your soul is healed. If your children have fallen prey to the spirit of lunacy and other Christians, they've fallen prey to the spirit of lunacy, that they will have a sound mind. God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I pray that people that are suffering in their bodies be healed now by his spirit. May God's spirit go forth and be glorified and many people coming back to a first love relationship with him. So thank you for listening to this message and continue to support me. I have a website at loverealize.com where you can support me. I myself have got myself into a lot of debt. I'm seeking through this book to hopefully get out of it. But thus far, it's only a few, it takes a while for the advertising to click in and I'm, so I'm just saying I'm in a difficult situation. I want to be free to fully focus on God's work, to fully focus on seeing churches established that will go all the way with God and churches waking up that will go all the way with God. In these last days, can't you see this terrible situation we're facing in the world, how dark it is? Wake up, church. Wake thou that sleepest, and Christ will give you light. Thank you for listening to this message. I am looking forward to breakthrough happening in the body of Christ as never before. We have to come together in communities and cities and fast and pray for three days at least. And if you can do an Esther fast, do it. We need to get desperate before God and wake up. Come together and seek the face of God and he, that he would have mercy before serious judgment comes upon the land. 
and we need to never go back to being the church the way we were, so comfortable and going through what we like. No, let us become those that become as house of prayer, as house of holiness, where the body is free to move in the gifts of the Spirit, and we do not stop it. We'll let the body go forth. Let God's Spirit move through the body. And yes, the leadership can still share, but let the body function first, confirming the word that you're to share. So God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this message.